Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is John Birch. John is Vice President of Appellate Advocacy for the Alliance for Defending Freedom. John has argued 12 cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, including cases defending the Catholic Church, teaching on the church, marriage, and sexuality. Uh, he's a married father of five and a fourth degree Knight of Columbus. And we're going to talk about his new book today, Loving God's Children, the Church and Gender Ideology. John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. With the craziness going on in the world and you with five kids, you really have a vested interest to uh, defend and promote the truth, don't you? I sure do. And our kids are getting a little bit older now. We're expecting our first grandchild here in a couple months. And so even more important for that next generation to be able to, to see and hear the truth. And the truth regarding gender ideology is pretty stark. Uh, the church speaks out very clearly on this issue. There are lots of dangers for our young people today who are getting sucked into all the social media. And the whole reason for this book was to give parents something that they could pick up to easily understand the church's teachings, the science, the culture, um, answering the most common questions about it. So they could talk to their children about it, as well as their family members and friends. Uh, as Catholics, we really need to get a good understanding of this issue if we want to protect our children. If you think about it, right, the objectifying or really the diminishing the respect of children has, has been a long time coming, you know, whether it's divorce and, you know, the kids will get over it. It's no big deal. Contraception, abortion. You know, you mentioned gender ideology, drag queen story times. I mean, Really, children, you know, have become, you know, purchasing children through surrogacy. Children have become a material object as opposed to human beings, really, in the eyes of the world, the way you, when you sit back and look how children are treated, haven't they? Yeah, there's really a, a long downward slope for kids in this country over the last you know, roughly 60 or so years, starting with the sexual revolution. And, and you put your finger on it when you talked about things like abortion and no-fault divorce. Uh, but also contraception itself. You know, one of the insights of Pope Paul VI in Humana Vitae was that if we separated procreation, you know, creating and having children from the sexual act in marriage, that all kinds of bad things would happen. And one of those would be the degradation of women, treating them as objects. And certainly that's come to pass over the last 60 years. Uh, but another is that then suddenly kids become objects. They're mere commodities. And everybody is entitled to have one if they want, but they don't have to have one if they don't want. And, and kids aren't given the dignity and respect that human beings made in the image and likeness of God are supposed to have. And I think gender ideology is really kind of like the, the last bastion at the end of that line, where now all of a sudden kids are, are not only something that parents can decide to have or not at their choice, even to take their life if they've already been conceived, um, but that children can be manipulated, as you said, through uh, drag queen story hours and uh, policies at school where teachers and counselors are transitioning kids behind their parents' back, specifically keeping it secret from their parents uh, so that they can control and manipulate them. And it's sad that our culture has reached this point. You start off the book, you know, talking about what is truth, or really the same question Pilate asked, but we live in a world where everything is reversed, right? It's, it's and I've mentioned on other shows, the screw tape letters in reality because those that are trying to defend their children are accused of child abuse 
when it's really the other side that it's abusing the children. It really, this world needs a book like yours and other books that you reference in here because we need to make sure that we're not crazy, right? <laughs> That's absolutely true. And, and the reason I start the book with that chapter is because there is so much craziness with respect to objective truth versus moral relativism, which is kind of the dominant mindset of today. And if you don't have a basic understanding of truth, then you can't even have an important discussion about something like gender ideology or about contraception or about abortion. Um, pretty soon, all those things just become a matter of opinion, like your favorite dessert. I like chocolate ice cream. You might like chocolate chip cookies. So the, the whole point of that, that first chapter is to push back on this notion held by more than 90% of our young people, talking about adolescents, teenagers, college students, uh, that all morals are relative. What's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you, but there is no objective truth. And we know that that is not true. Um, you know, the, the fact that a child wants to touch a stove and really, really wants to do that, says it'll make them feel good about it, doesn't make that true. A parent would never let it happen because they understand that the child will get burned. It will hurt them. There's an objective truth the child doesn't understand yet. And then, you know, this whole notion of our culture kind of turning truth upside down, um, really, that goes all the way back to that very first lie that the devil told Adam and Eve in the garden, that you can't trust God, and so you have to take matters into your own hands. And that's what gender ideology is all about, that we can't trust God with the gift of the body, male or female, that he's given us, but instead we have to take control of ourselves and change our body to meet whatever subjective stereotype we might have in our head about how male or female we are. Uh, so it's a, it's a new problem. It's a dangerous problem, but it's as old as the very first part of Genesis. And uh, we're, we're still dealing with that problem of truth and the devil's lies. Just the other day, uh, you've probably seen this, you know, Chloe Cole spoke before Congress giving giving her testimony. And they, they I think on, it was on Twitter for, you know, it's like a five minute segment. I would encourage people to go look at it because when you hear her story, it's going to it's the story of millions of children that we're going to hear over and over again of how they were lied to, how they were taken advantage of when they were in a very you know tender state. And their parents, you know, threatened with if you don't do this. Would you rather have, you know, a dead a dead daughter or a live transgender son. I mean, all kind of these crazy things, but I don't know if you've seen, seen her testimony, but it was very powerful. Yet people on the other side of the aisle weren't listening at all. They really don't care about the kids. They really only care about the agenda. That, that seems to be obviously true because they're ignoring the science behind it. And I want to focus in on that one lie that you just highlighted. Uh, would you rather have a, a dead daughter or a live son? Because that's simply not true. Uh, what we know from the science is that for those uh, kids who grow up into adults and they take the puberty blockers and they take the cross-sex hormones and they even take the surgery, and of course the surgery doesn't change their sex because every cell in their body is coated with chromosomes that will tell anybody who looks for the rest of their life, whether they're male or female, but, you know, they, they do the surgery and all that. The best long-term studies that we have show that those adults have higher suicide rates and higher issues of mental health problems. 
And so it's not a solution to simply take a 13-year-old who might have some discomfort with their body and send them down this course. That's the exact opposite of loving them. It's harming them. And what 13-year-old hasn't ever been uncomfortable in their body as they're going through puberty? That's the worst possible time that you could intervene and do something drastic like this. And the science also shows that those kids who might be having some dysphoria or might identify as a a gender different than their sex, that 80 to 95% of them, if left on their own, will naturally align their mind with their body. Uh, but if you start to affirm them by using the pronouns, by encouraging cross-dressing, by encouraging them to use the opposite sexes facilities, um, nearly 100% of those kids will go down this road of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgery, resulting in the even worse outcomes that we were just talking about. Um, so it, it's important that stories like Chloe's get told. It's important that we focus on the science. You know, we, we hear all the time, we should follow the science. Well, this is one area where it's definitely not happening. And we can talk in some more detail about what's gone wrong with the American medical profession there. Um, but, but it's the, the worst possible outcome for a, a child to send them down a road that will result in even more harm to them. And to the church's credit, right, they did come out with document back in 2019 you know, really explaining, you know, how as Catholics we need to view this, how we need to love people, but we how, how we need to share the truth. And, and you talk about that in your book. Yeah, I talk about that 2019 document in two ways. Uh, first, at the very beginning of the book, just to show how crazy the public debate is about this, the church comes out with this document explaining her teachings about the embodied individual and how our sex nature, male and female, says something about the person that God created us to be for the purpose of preventing bullying and discrimination and, and things like that. And the New York Times immediately comes without, out with an article saying that the church's document is hateful and bigoted. You know, and that's the whole nature of the debate right here. You either agree with the, uh, the gender idealists or you're a hateful, bigoted person. Um, but really, that church document was one of many in a, a line that I kind of walked through in the book to help people understand where the church is coming from on this. Um, you've got that document. You've got the recent document from the USDCB regarding um, gender surgeries and treatments in hospitals. Uh, you've got a number of statements by Pope Francis, not only in public talks, but also in two uh, of his writings, um, his, uh, his apostolic documents. And then we've got a whole series of beautiful documents written by U.S. bishops on this very topic. And, and you read all those together, and there are a couple of threads that you can draw from them. Uh, first, that the created body is a gift from God. And that's a gift that we should accept and not reject and try to take into our own hands. Another is that we are embodied souls. We are not just souls trapped in this mechanical robot-like thing that we're free to modify and, and change as we please. That that's a, a, a heresy, Gnosticism from the second century, that the church has to keep beating back over and over again. But that this idea of embodied souls means that our, our body shows who we are in some respect, and that's important. Uh, these documents also go back to the theology of the body that St. Pope John Paul II explained so beautifully uh, that God creates male and female specifically because they are complementary. And when a man and a woman come together in a sacramental marriage, their love is so strong that it can result in an entirely new person that has its own name, a son or a daughter, and that this, um, this family images 
the, the Trinity itself. It's an icon of the exchange of love between father and son uh, being so strong that precedes it, proceeds from it is the, the Holy Spirit, uh, three in one God. Um, and so you're disrupting God's plan when you disrupt that, um, that icon. Uh, a fourth thread, and, and Pope Francis talks about this beautifully, that we can only have a, a true encounter with another person when we do it honestly, representing ourselves as we truly are. And if we start trying to change and modify ourselves, then it really eliminates our ability to have that communion with another person. Um, so just you know, one point after another, these beautiful church documents, 100% consistent with the science that we're seeing, all showing us that there are, are dangers to gender ideology that cannot be ignored, and that we need to teach our kids about the importance of honoring and respecting the human body as God created it. Some bishops have been strong in this. And, you know, we just, it wasn't too long ago, Archbishop Sample, I think it was out in Oregon, uh, you know, told the Catholic schools, look, this is, this is the route we're going. We need to make sure that we defend this. And he, the pushback he received was from the teachers and the principals, right? It was, we like to think, well, if we're Catholic, we get this, but many of the Catholics have bought into this lie and bishops need to be strong. And if it means shutting down a school, it means shutting down a school, right? They can't compromise on this issue. They cannot compromise because the future of our children is at stake. And and there was a revolt there, and he did the responsible thing, which was not to shut down the school, but was to shut down the school bureaucracy that seemed to be supporting the other side's nonsense. And, and many of these beautiful bishops' documents that make some of the points that we were just discussing are written specifically for Catholic schools so that no teachers, no parents, no staff are, are confused about where the church stands on these issues. And the bishops make clear that if you've got a student in school, uh, they, they have to use sex-reflective pronouns. The teachers are not allowed to use any other pronoun, a preferred pronoun or a title, to refer to a child because that's confusing, both to kids who are perhaps experiencing some gender dysphoria, but also to other students. They make clear that those Students have to be in the privacy spaces, the showers, the bathrooms, the locker rooms that are consistent with their sex, because that not only prevents the confusion, but it honors the privacy and dignity of all students. Uh, those same documents make clear, and there's a really good one from the, the Nebraska bishops that I mentioned in the, the book about athletics. And if you've got a boy who identifies as a girl, he doesn't get to compete on the girls team because that's unjust and it imposes a fairness on those girls who are working so hard so that they can achieve um, spots in finals races and on winners podiums and, you know, get the recognition that they deserve. And, you know, so throughout all these things, you see the, the bishop speaking strongly on that. Uh, but we've got to make sure that everybody stays with that, that program. And so if you live in a, a diocese and you have a local Catholic school and you're concerned about some of these things, uh, then read the book and get these resources and bring them to the attention of your bishop so that they can be implemented there too. It's important not only for that school culture, but also for the well-being and the flourishing of all the students who attend there. And you do have a lot of great resources in the book. And, and you know, at the end, you have a lot of questions and answers on questions that people or you know, the world will be have to address and you give answers to them. So it's actually it's a it's a very educational book and something you can continue to go back and, and learn from. And you talk about, you know, what is my identity? Right. If our identity is rooted in anything than in our creator, then we are in danger of going down the slope that we're going through today. Right. Because when we are what we say we are sexually or some people identify what they are politically, 
No, we're we're created right in the image and likeness of our God. And but when we identify as some material or social thing, it, it just leads to all kinds of you know bad situations. That's absolutely right. If you get the identity wrong, then you kind of get everything wrong. Uh, there's an example in the book about some boys who are caught behind a shed and they're smoking. And you don't label them as smokers because if they start to identify that way, then their entire life choices are all going to revolve around this new identity that they are smokers. Instead, they are boys who made a mistake and they smoked and we're going to try to stop them from doing that again. And anytime that we start to identify based on any characteristic, whether it's um, based on our bodies or based on our politics, even based on our, our professions, and some of us might be inclined to do that, um, then we're taking away from our one true identity as sons and daughters of Christ. You know, so, so take me, for example, I'm a lawyer. And so if, if my whole identity was wrapped up in being a lawyer, I would forget about the worship that's due to my creator. I would forget about the relationships that he calls me to, to both love him and to love my neighbors as much as I possibly can to the extent that I can. Uh, if I'm just thinking about being a lawyer all the time, I forget about the importance of my role as spouse and as father to my children and, and soon to be grandfather to my grandchildren. Uh, so the, this identity question is is absolutely crucial. And, and there's a great um, example of this in the Bible. Father Michael Schmitz talks about this uh, in, in his book, which I reference in, in my book, and that's the prodigal son, you know, where he loses his identity. He takes half of the, the father's estate, everything that he's entitled to, and he goes off, and as we know, he squanders it on, on women and fast times and things like that, and the next thing he knows, he's feeding pigs and wishing that he could share in their food because that pig slop is the best thing he's seen to eat for days. And then he remembers, he remembers who he is, that he's the son of a loving father. And he knows that even if he goes back and his father is upset with him for all that he's done and the way that he squandered his estate, that his father will still love him and that love will sustain him and allow him to turn his life back around. And it is the same way with God. If we turn away from him and embrace any of these identities, especially these sexual identities, that, that's why it's really so evil to embrace the LGBT mantra that, that someone is identified by their sexual orientation or identified by their, their gender identity. It's not too late. We can go to confession, have our sins forgiven, go back to our loving father, restore that relationship, and once we've reclaimed our identity as son or daughter of Christ, we can find the path forward. If you think about it, right, gender dysphoria, anybody who agrees and encourages a dysphoria is either ignorant, a coward, or trying to present some kind of false compassion, right? They're not presenting the truth. They're not loving this individual. And when they're not doing either one of those things, they're not doing, they're not bringing Christ into their ministry and into their lives to be able to share that truth and that love that people so desperately need. I'm really glad you brought that up because among society generally, but even among some, some Catholics, we've lost the sense of what it means to truly love the way the church defines love. If you think about it, when you, you go to the movies or you watch a TV show, love is always portrayed as this sentimental feeling. It's something that I, I feel good about when I see somebody else or spend time with them. And in the catechism, that's not the way the church talks about it. It says that love is willing the best for another person. We want to do everything we can to help that person flourish and be the best possible version of themselves. And sometimes to love someone is to deny them the very thing that they want. If you've got a family member and they're an alcoholic, 
and, and more than anything, they want another drink because that makes them feel good about themselves. The, the loving thing to do is not to give them the alcohol and to encourage that, that bad behavior, but instead to protect them from it. Um, other times, love means telling someone hard truths. Uh, you know, again, take the example of the, the child who wants to touch the hot stove. Um, the child may not want to hear that the stove is going to hurt them, but that's an important truth you have to convey to them. Just like if they want to play in the street and you need to convey the truth of the, the cars coming by. Um, so th this notion of getting the love part right is absolutely critical. And so when you're talking about a, a child with um, some kind of gender dysphoria, and so now we're talking about a, a clinical diagnosis, not just someone who, because of a social contagion, you know, half a dozen girls in a class all decide they're going to be boys, uh, but someone who's really struggling because there are people like that out there. Uh, they need our compassion. They need our true love. They need us to walk alongside them as companions. And that's one of the points of the book that when we reject gender ideology, we don't reject the people who might be suffering gender dysphoria. But in walking with that person, to love them, to, to speak the truth to them and help them get to a place where it will be best for them does not require us to endorse that fantasy. And, and just one other you know, mental health example where you've got this incongruence between mind and body that kind of illustrates that perfectly. If you had a family member uh, who had an eating disorder, uh, they also have a misalignment between what their mind envisions their body to be and what reality says about that body. Uh, their body is, is probably underweight and, and, and needs to have some more mass, but yet in their mind, they think that they're too fat and so they need to do something about that. And a loving parent, a loving sibling, um, loving anybody would never encourage that person to eat less or to have surgery to make their appetite decrease even more because that leads to illness and death. That's the exact opposite of loving, even if it's giving into what that person wants. Instead, you would do everything you can to help them align their mind with the body, which ironically is the way that psychologists and counselors had treated gender dysphoria for decades until just recently. Uh, and then we kind of got off track with respect to that. So if we want to love the person, we have to help them find and respect and align themselves with reality. When we do that, that helps them become the best possible person they can be. When we don't, again, the science shows it leads to a, a life of misery and, and not just the mental health and the, the suicide attempts and things like that. Um, when you get on those puberty blockers and when you take those cross-sex hormones, it results in all kinds of other ill health effects, everything from permanent infertility to loss of bone mass um, to stunted growth and brain development and other things that are objectively bad for people. Uh, so to, to love them, we need to help them walk alongside them, but not necessarily endorse what they want, uh, help them endorse the truth instead. You talk about the case of Walt Heyer. We've actually had him on the show. Um, and you talk about detransitioners and that Chloe Cole, who I mentioned earlier, is one. There's going to be a tsunami of these people. And when you hear their stories, they just wish somebody would have told them the truth, right? This, this, this wave of people finally coming to the realization of who they are and not who their mind says they are. Is this, this going to be? This is just the tip of the iceberg. We're heading down a path of constant litigation on this, trying to sue people who never told them the truth, aren't we? We sure are. And there's a whole chapter in the book just on the detransitioners. And it breaks my heart to think about their stories because here are these people who were suffering from real mental health issues. They, you know, they, they, they felt like they didn't belong in their bodies. 
And they were misled by medical professionals who very quickly turned them on to cross-sex hormones and surgeries and, and things like that, rather than helping them deal with their underlying issues, you know, oftentimes coming from abuse or, or other things. All of a sudden, at the end of that path, realized it didn't solve the problem. They, they still had the underlying depression and anxiety and other issues that they had. But when they went to detransition, de their bodies had been horribly disfigured. And like you said, in almost every one of those cases, the, the plaintiff cry at the end is, why didn't anyone tell me? And that's one of the things that, that haunts me as I think about this issue. You know, what people do I know out there that need to know that truth? Because I would hate to ever be asked that question. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me the truth about what could happen to me? And, and there are good counselors out there, good therapists especially not Catholic counselors who can help people with these issues and to help them realign their minds with their bodies. Um, but, but even there, you see the, the activists on the other side passing these counseling censorship laws that prevent that kind of counseling from even happening. They call them anti-conversion laws, very misleadingly. Um, you know, and, and it's just to continue sending people down that path. It's, uh, it's an evil, evil thing. Like you said, the laws, you know, Colorado is one of those states you know, the other side has nothing to stand on when they have to outlaw truth because they don't have an argument for you. Right. So it's calling you names. It's, you know, doing legislation so that you can't share the truth with individuals. And so you mentioned people need to speak up. And I think this book speaks highly and it gives people the ammunition and the education they need to be able to respond lovingly, but to respond firmly like they know what's going on. Again, it's Loving God's Children, the Church of Gender Ideology. And I like the fact that you reference Abigail Schreier, Ryan Anderson, right? There's a whole list of books that people can read to really educate themselves where they don't have to go on social media and try to figure it out, right? There are tons of resources out there. Um, one in particular that I'll reference is the Person and Identity Project, uh, which is an online website resource where, from a Catholic perspective, you can get answers to lots of questions and lots of detailed information. Uh, but th this book was really intended to be both a, a clearinghouse to collect all those good resources, um, you know, but also something that really brought the teachings of the Catholic Church to the forefront in ways that maybe other books had not. You know, Abigail Schreier's book is great. It talks about the social contagion and how girls are turning to gender identity in, in large numbers, especially because of social media's impacts. Uh, Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, excellent book about some of the science and um, the, the moral philosophy behind the differences between men and women. Uh, but, but this one pulls all those different threads together and then roots it, grounds it in the teaching of the Catholic Church itself. And so that way um, you have the right starting point. You've got that right identity, that right relationship with the creator to begin. And then everything makes more sense. It does have a, a nihil obstat from the JP2 Institute on Marriage and Family at Catholic University of America, as well as the imprimatur of my bishop. So when you're reading it, you know that nothing in it is contradicting anything the Catholic Church has said on the subject. And uh, we've got Archbishop Chaput and a number of other uh, priests that I'm sure many of you, your listeners, have heard of, Father Robert Spitzer, Father Paul Scalia, Father Robert Sirico, um, and others who have endorsed it, specifically because Catholics need a resource that they can use to learn these issues thoroughly, explain them simply, and make sure that their kids aren't getting into trouble. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.